Now, this weekend, I want to talk about community uh, re-emphasized. And of course, this is in line with the fact that in July we, uh, is our cell month. And, you know, and, and the reason is because we all inherently know that community is important, right? And it is part of the Christian experience that we uh, have. But sometimes staying plugged in and committed can get uh, quite difficult, right? A lot of things pull at our time, our resources, our attention, our emotions. Things go up and things go down. And uh, there are seasons that we run through. And that is why every year in July, the church uh, wants to go back to the basics of building community through our cell groups. Okay? And this is important. And because community is really uh, an important aspect of our Christian expression as well as our Christian experience, okay? So this mid-year re-emphasis is important so that we don't lose track of those things that are the most crucial and fundamental to what we are or who we are as Christians. Amen? You know, at creation, when God created Adam, God declared that it is not good that man should be alone. The reason is because God created us for connections and community. The nation of Israel was initiated by the obedience of a couple, Abraham and Sarah, and she did not begin to take form until Jacob and his family of 70 went down to Egypt, and out of that formed a community of people that became a nation. David's life in the Bible is not recorded in isolation, but narrated through his journey with those whom God has joined together. Jesus himself lived in a community with his disciples, as well as those who followed him and the crowds that came around to him. Paul never worked in singularity, but always had a team with him. And every city he entered, he immediately formed communities of believers that gathered around their common faith in Jesus Christ. This is the way of life that God has created for every one of us. This is the expression of our Christian faith. And I would go so far as to say this, that we cannot be Christians without being plugged into a community because it's so far away from our faith that we should be able to live our faith in isolation. I don't think that that's a possibility. Now, I want to remind us this weekend of some important truths concerning community, okay? And at the same time, I want to put forward some uh, crucial perspective for the season that we are in. Every year as we come to July, you know, the cell ministry, they, they really make an effort to pray and to seek the Lord as to what God is wanting to say to the cell ministry as a whole. And I want to come alongside that and emphasize that along for us. Amen. Now, the first thing I want to do is I want to reiterate something that we should know. And, um, and perhaps for those of you who have been in Cornerstone for some time, you've heard me speak about this in the past, but it is worth for me to rehearse and to remind us concerning this. And the first is this, that intimacy with God comes through people. Now, I want to emphasize this because this is something that is revelatory for me personally, and I believe it's something that the community or the, uh, or the body of believers needs to discover, and that is that community and people are God's way of drawing us to a place of intimacy with Himself. Now, a lot of times when we talk about the subject of intimacy with Christ, what we immediately think about or what we immediately reference to is about ourselves spending more time with God, whether it is through prayer, whether it is through fasting or through the reading of the Word of God or through journaling. Many times we refer to things that has to do with our personal spiritual discipline and how we spend time with God. But I want to say this, okay, that I believe that these aspects are important, but they represent only one side of how God has designed for us to approach Him. I believe that there are two wings that God has given to us for us to soar into His presence and personal discipline, spiritual discipline, is just one 
one wing. Now, I don't know about you, you know, I live around in Pasir Ris. I go running almost every day and around the evenings, you know, there's always like a press conference going around the parks and these are all the photographers coming to take photos of the birds. Now, I've seen many birds. I've seen hornbills, I've seen kingfishers, I've seen woodpeckers, I've seen these cranes, you know, but I've never ever seen a bird flying with one wing, okay? And that just does not happen. Birds can't fly with one wing, okay? And the same thing, we cannot come to a place of intimacy with God if we only have one wing. Now, the other wing through which God has designed for us to come to an inter a place of intimacy with Him is really through people. And how the Lord convicted me about this is found in John chapter 15, verse 9 to verse 17. And I want to again break this passage of Scripture down for us because I think that this is so revelatory, it is so important. Now in John 15, Jesus talks about this whole aspect of intimacy with Him and He talks about the key to this intimacy being His commandment for us to love one another. Now in verse 9, He begins by saying this, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now, this is amazing. You see, this is the starting point. This is where God calls us to a loving relationship with Him. This is our relationship of love with Jesus Christ. But there is something about love is that, that there's something that we need to understand about love is that love requires us to abide in it. You know, I've been married for 20 years with my wife, Wendy, and I want to tell you this, that just because we're married doesn't mean love is automatic. Amen? You've got to learn to abide in that love. You've got to keep growing in that love. You've got to spend time. You've got to talk to each other. You've got to fall in love over and over again. Amen? Right? For those of you who are married, you'll understand this, okay? It's not that you sign the paper, you exchange the ring, and then love is automatic. You need to learn to abide. And the same thing is, it is with our spiritual walk. We need to learn to abide in God's love. And the way that Jesus tells us that we do that is by obedience to His commandments. Now, you skip down to uh, two verses. Jesus says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. You see, the Lord gives us here the main focal point, and it is the commandment to love one another. And not only that, He gives us the standard of love by saying this, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Right? Now, think about this. Jesus could have emphasized an, any number of commandments that are there in the Word of God. But He zeroes in on the one thing that is crucial to what He's talking about. It's this one commandment that we are to love one another. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about this later on. Okay? But let me just continue to explain this passage of uh, verses, this series of verses. Now, in the next verse, the Lord then goes on. He says, You are my friend if you do whatever I command you. And he's talking about friendship with Christ. And friendship with Christ is attained through our obedience to his commands. In the next verse, he says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. Now, this is an amazing inflection point in what Jesus is saying. He's telling us that, hey, there are differences between being a servant and being a friend. And all of us in our walk with God, we always begin by thinking as a servant. We approach Christ thinking about what we need to do for Him. But there is a place whereby the Lord calls us to be His friends. And the distinction between a servant and a friend is that a friend knows the reason for why God does what He does. The friend is the one whom Jesus says, whatever I hear from the Father, I also reveal to you. Now to me, that is intimacy that is being described. 
Can you imagine that the God of the universe divulges what, he's in, what is in His heart to you? Right? That is what intimacy is all about. The, the ability to hear and the access that is given to hear what God is saying. Now the next verse, next verse then says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that's what God wants. He wants fruitfulness. And that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give you. Now here is an amazing promise. Whatever you ask the Father, you will receive. And I call this a place of access. A place of access. And again, I'll give a little bit more commentary on this later on. And finally, to close off this passage of Scripture, the Lord comes back to the commandment. He says, these things I command you that you love one another. This is the command. This is the commandment that Jesus is focusing on. Now, what you have here is you have a description of the progression of our walk with Christ. And God shows us this pathway. It starts with a place where we love Him, we love God, and then we learn to abide in that love because we, you know, you know, we are not always consistent in our love with Christ and our relationship with God as we begin our walk. But God wants to bring us to a place of abiding and of continually walking in love with Him. And the requirement is obedience to the Lord's commandments. Amen? And the commandment that is reiterated over and over again here is just one commandment and it's this to love one another. It is through our obedience of this commandment that we progress from being servants to being friends. And that's crucial. That's a key. That's an important point of inflection in our relationship uh, as we walk with the Lord. And then the Lord, then we come to a place of intimacy because as friends, God begins to reveal His heart to us. He begins to show us what is it that He's doing here on the earth. And then through this intimacy, do we come to a place of access where whatever we ask, God answers and He gives us. You know, I believe this as I read through the Word of God that there are these positions that the Bible talks about that we as believers may attain to. One of the favorite positions I found is found in the life of Samuel and the Bible gives us a simple description of Samuel that whatever he spoke does not fall to the ground. Now, that's an amazing thing. Can you imagine the moment some words comes out of your mouth, God will upkeep those words. God will fulfill those words. And I believe that there is a place in our walk with God where we walk so closely with God that we can reach that position. And here is another position that whatever you ask, it will be given to you. And this is a wonderful position in Christ that He wants to give to us. And in this passage of Scripture, Jesus tells us how to come to this place of access. Amen? I don't think God will ever give us such a position if we are not walking in intimacy with Him. Right? Remember the two sons of thunders? And they said to Jesus, let us call down fire and wipe out all these people. And then the Lord says, that's why you cannot call down fire. <laughs> because you're of the wrong spirit. You don't understand. You are not in a place of intimacy where you know what is the Father's heart. Amen? And God can only entrust a place of access to those who are walking in intimacy with Him. And then to close out this section, Jesus emphasizes again the commandment and he's, that He's focusing on and it is the commandment to love one another. You see, so much of our walk with God is focused on developing love in every one of us. And the best way by which God is going to develop love in us is through loving one another. The Bible tells us this, how can you love God whom you have not seen in the natural when you cannot love your brothers and your sisters who are around you? Look at the person to your left, to your right, to your front and your back. 
Because they are the ones who hold the key towards your intimacy with Christ. They are the ones who hold the key towards a deeper walk with uh, the Lord. Amen. And it is through this love, it's through the process of loving, right, that we learn to become, that we learn to develop love in our lives. Now, Jesus also tells us the standard of love. And he tells us that, you know, love, the standard of love in the kingdom of God is whereby we're willing to lay our lives for one another. Now, that is a tall order. Amen. I'm not talking about your latte, a tall order, okay? But I'm talking about the fact that this is a very high standard, amen? Especially in the context when Jesus said this in the days of the early church, where Christians were being executed for their faith and for them to lay down their lives one another, it's something real. It isn't just something that we mouth and say, oh brother, I lay my life down for you. It'll be tested, amen? I can't stay to Pastor Kevin, hey Pastor Kevin, I love you so much, I'm going to lay down my life for you. And then just expect that only to be words because the very next day, if I was living in the early church, I would have to lay my life down for him. Literally, right? And yet this is the commandment that Jesus focused on when speaking about loving him, loving the Father, abiding in him, coming to a place of intimacy. In other words, I want to say this to us, okay? If we confess to love God and we are not plucked into a community, and we're not committed to people who are around us within the church and learning to love one another, then our confession of love for God is empty. Hello? Okay, I need, I need to accept the fact that everybody is masked and nobody's supposed to respond, okay? <laughs> but think about that for a moment. Think about that for a moment. The magnitude of this, right? Now, let me say this. I know, I know that we've all been heard before by Christians. Okay, And uh, I don't want to say that I've been hurt by Christians. I know I've hurt many Christians before in my life with the words that I say, you know, with the insensitivity that I've exhibited. You know, and, 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 and at the same time, you know, I want to say this, that when you get close to people, that you can't, I, I can't make you a promise that you wouldn't get hurt by people, especially by Christians again. Amen? In fact, I want to say this. If you respond this weekend and you decide you're going to join a cell, there is one thing I can guarantee you about. I can guarantee you that you are going to get hurt. You are going to get disappointed. You are going to, you, you know, you're going to be tried when you join a cell group because that is the point, right? That is the point. How do we learn to love if we're not willing to be hurt, if we're not willing to be maligned, if we're not willing to be disappointed? Amen? I mean, all you parents, you know this. You have kids, and when they're a little baby, oh, what darlings they are. Then they become teenagers and they start hurting you, right? But that's what love is. And then you learn the magnitude of father's love. You learn the magnitude of a parent's love. Then no matter what happens, our love for them continues because love has to be grown in such an atmosphere, such an environment. And this is the process that God has chosen to bring us to a place of intimacy with Him. Can you see the master plan that God has? He's chosen this path because only through this path can we understand what He has gone through as God who loves. Amen? Amen? I want to just encourage you concerning this. Amen? Don't be discouraged if you have problems in cell. If you have been hurt before and you say, hey, I'm not going to go to cell anymore. That's the wrong decision. Right? If you've been hurt before in cell group, all the more you should go back to cell. Don't look for a cell group where hey, everybody is nice and you know nobody's gonna you know and you know and nobody's gonna bother you and 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 or maybe you've made the decision you know I'm just gonna come to church you know and uh, come in quietly at the back sit and then leave because I don't want to know people because when I know people they'll hurt me. That's precisely the plan. God intends for us to be hurt, and yet 
through that process, teach us what it means to love. And I want to encourage us, this is essential. If you have a heart for God, if you want to grow with the Lord, then you've got to be plugged in to community. Now, the second thing I want to bring to us, okay, has to do with the prodigals. Because as the cell ministry began to pray about this, and of course in the church as well, one of the things that God has been speaking to us is that He wants to bring the prodigals back. Those who have backslidden, those who no longer walk with God, or those who have become wayward, have been far away from the Lord. And for us to talk about the prodigals, I want to bring us back to the parable of the prodigal son. Okay, And I know that this is a, a parable that is often cited, one of the most well-known uh, parables together with the parable of the Good Samaritan. But again, I, I love to look at what is familiar and, and then realize that despite their familiarity, they still have so much truth, fresh truth, to yield to us as we examine it. Okay, In fact, I spoke briefly about this parable two weeks ago in my message on Father's Day. And I just really felt like as I was looking at that parable, just God just showed me new things that I've not seen before. Okay, And so I want to circle back to that parable again and maybe go a little bit deeper into it. Okay, Now to start us off, let me say this, the parable has been wrongly entitled. It should not be called the parable of the lost son or the parable of the prodigal son. But instead, it should be called the parable of the older brother. Now, and the reason I say this is because the purpose of this parable wasn't a call for prodigals to come back. This parable, Jesus didn't tell this parable to those people who are lost, okay? In order to call them and say, come back to Father. But Jesus told this parable to those who had the attitude of the older brother, who could not celebrate and accommodate the returning prodigals. Jesus wasn't talking this parable to the lost. He's addressing it to the Pharisees and the scribes who were gathered around him and who were criticizing him for spending his time and welcoming sinners and tax collectors. Okay, So this is the first perspective shift we need to, uh, to have as we approach this parable because as you change your perspective on it, you'll begin to see some new things. Okay, Now, the first thing I want to bring across to us is that the prodigals are coming back. They are returning. Now, when you look at this parable, you got to know that Jesus told this parable as a triplet of parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the last lost son. And these parables have a similar theme to it, but they are different, okay? And they are distinctives about each of these parables. For example, in the parable of the lost sheep, you're talking about one in a hundred that is lost. In the parable of the lost coin, it's one in ten that's lost. And of course, in the parable of the lost son, it's one in two. And there's an there's a, a, a ascending emphasis of importance that these parables are bringing to us. There's almost a crescendo that Jesus is building up towards. Now, the, another difference that is, uh, that is uh, insightful for us is to consider this, that the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, someone went looking for what is lost. The shepherd went to look for the sheep that was lost. The woman went to look for the coin that she had lost. But in this parable, no one went to look for the lost. Now, some commentators have said that this was actually the job of the older brother to go look for the younger brother. Maybe, I'm not so certain. But what I have discovered in the years of being a pastor is that when people have determined in their hearts that they're going to wander away from God, they're going to do their own thing, it's very hard that they can, it's very seldom that they can be stopped. It doesn't matter sometimes when people have determined their hearts what they want to do. You can counsel them. You can plead with them. Don't do this. Don't do that. And most people will still go and do it because they've already determined their hearts that they're going to do that. Okay. So in this parable, what brings the, par the, the prodigal back wasn't because someone went to look for the prodigal, but it was because circumstances forced the, the prodigal to come back. Now, this is the other dimension that we might not be 
aware of. The result of prodigal living will always catch up with those who are prodigals. If you have made a choice to choose sin and to walk in your own wayward ways, eventually your actions will catch up with you. Prodigal living will have results. And it's not always the judgment of God that comes that brings us back. It's just simply the consequences of bad, sinful decisions. Amen? What you sow, you will reap. And these things will catch up. And I'm telling you this, the season of catching up is here. And yet the thing, the good thing is this, that we have a loving Father who wants these seasons not to drive us into despair, but to drive us back to Him. The outcome, though, is that many of the backsliders, as they go through this season you know, of reckoning, of their actions catching up, is that they're going to start recalling moments in their life when God was present with them. They will think and say, hey, I remember the peace of God. I remember the time where I came to the presence of God and there His presence was and there we enjoyed fellowship. I remember those times of God's love, His words, His promises, the visions that He's given to me, the assurance. I'm telling you, the presence of God will visit them in that time and remind them. And then they'll say, was it not better to have remained in my father's house? Let me go back to the father's house. And so the prodigals is this, is that they are going to return no matter what, they are coming. And this is what makes this parable so important because they are coming back. The second thing I want to bring to you about this parable is the restoration of the prodigals will be accelerated. Luke chapter 15, verse 21 to 24, we see the beautiful restoration of the prodigals by the father. And, you know, the, the son begins in a state of unworthiness, right? He comes back and he says to the father, he says, you know, I'm not worthy to be a son. I just want to be a slave. But the father quickly elevates him back to his position as a son in the house. And he gives him, of course, clothing, a garment, a ring, as well as he puts sandals on his feet, okay? Now, each of these items are a symbol of status as well as position. And implied in these symbols is also authority, okay? But I don't mean all kinds of authority. Specifically, it was an authority and position that is uh, associated with being a son or a daughter in the house, okay? Now, I want to give commentary to the garment and the sandals, okay? Not to the rings because there's a lot to be spoken to. Be. Now, now there, there are a lot of meanings to these things, okay? But I just want to bring across something relevant for us, okay? Firstly, the garment really represents, in a very straightforward sense, a covering. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to cover themselves with leaves, right? And it was inadequate. It couldn't cover them. It couldn't remove the guilt. It couldn't remove the, the shame. But when God comes and He gives a, a garment of skin to cover Adam and Eve, He was making provision to cover their guilt and their sin. And it forespoke of the blood of Jesus Christ, that brings liberation from our past. And that's the kind of covering that God wants to bring. When the prodigal starts returning, the first thing the Father in heaven is going to do is He's going to cover them with His forgiveness and He's going to restore dignity to them. And that is what we need to come alongside and celebrate and affirm in the prodigals. We need to clothe them with spiritual garments. Amen? We need to cover them with dignity again. We need to cover them and say to them, hey, your sins are forgiven you. We need to alleviate them from the shame and the guilt that they might be living under. Amen? Now, the second thing is sandals. And sandals represents one's reputation and standing. Deuteronomy 25 is a very unusual set of uh, instructions. And, 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 and a situation is painted in this chapter whereby a man dies without descendants. Okay? 
And when the man dies without descendants, the responsibility comes to his brother, and his brother is required to help continue his name by raising up a descendant for him. And this is required of the brother. Now, if the brother refuses to do that for his deceased brethren, then the widow of the deceased man is, is told to remove that man's shoes, his sandals, okay, and then spit on his face. Can, can you imagine there's commandments like that in the Bible? There's actually a right time for you to spit at people, okay? You know, it's, isn't it fascinating? Jesus spit on somebody and healed, healed them, you know, of blindness, right? But here is, you know, here is also a spitting incident, spitting on the face. And then that man's name is, you know, a title is given to that man, and the man's title is now called the house of him who had his sandals removed. The house of him who's had his sandals removed. That's a very uh, unusual title, right? But essentially what it does is this man loses his standing in the community. He's, this man loses, it's almost like he loses his citizenship right. Okay? He can't vote. You know, he, he can't stand in the Sanhedrin as a, you know, to give witness. You know, he loses his reputation because he's unwilling to do what is righteous. And that is having one's sandals removed. To have your sandals removed is to have your standing in the community removed. And when the father comes and puts the sandals back to the son, he's saying to him, your standing as a child of God is reinstated to you. It is reinstated to you. And I believe these are the essential things that we need to restore and be ready to restore to the prodigals when they return, and we must restore them quickly. We must cover their shame, we must cover their guilt, and we must give them back a standing as our brother, as our sister in Christ. Amen? And that's important for us to come to that place. Now, finally, the third thing I want to bring to us is the mentality of sons versus slaves. This is the crux of the matter because it is about the response of the older brother. Let's look at verse 29, verse 31 of Luke chapter 15. The, the, this is the older son when he responded, okay, when he saw the younger brother come back. He said to the father, Lo, these many years I've been serving, which means slaving and working for you. I never transgressed your commandments at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. Right? You know, and then, uh, you know, and then the father responded to the son by saying, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. Now, let me point out something that is uh, a few things that are of concern for us. The elder son basically was carrying with him a mentality of a slave. Look at this. He comes to the father and this is how he describes his relationship with his father. He doesn't talk about the fellowship they have. He doesn't talk about the heart of the father. He doesn't talk about the sweet times that they have. But he says, Lo, all these years I've been working and slaving for you and you've never rewarded me. The way he describes his relationship with his father is that he reduces his description to a work and payment kind of relationship. Now that's a slave relationship. That's not a son-father relationship. And he must have been holding this grudge literally for years because he opens the statement by saying, all these years, wow, all these years, I've been serving as an usher. You never make me usher head. You never, you know, publicize my picture on the screen, you know. I'm sure ushers don't think like that, you know. But I'm just saying, I'm just trying to contextualize it, right? Have we ever said the same things ourselves? Have we thought like that as well? I've served all these years, I've done all these, I've done this, I've done that, I've toyed without complaining, without recognition. And now, you know, this guy who does nothing at all shows up and he gets the limelight, you know. Let me say this, okay. There, there are situations where you are permitted to behave like that. If you're in a contractual relationship with your company 
and you've worked hard and you have not been recognized and you've been bypassed for promotion after promotion, maybe it's time for you to think, yeah, maybe I should think about moving on, okay? And if that's how you describe your relationship in a, in a contractual relationship you have your company, I think, yeah, okay, that's fine, yeah? But if this is how you describe your relationship with God, if this is how you describe your relationship with your brothers and your sisters, if this is how you describe your familial relationships, then something is wrong. Because when we are friends, when we are brothers and sisters, when we are committed to one another, this is, how, this is not how we measure our relationships. Amen? And here is it. The Father prescribes this for us. He says to the Son, He says, you are with me always. You see, this is what mattered to the Father. The Father, what mattered to the Father was that my Son is with me. My son is in this journey with me. I've got him. He's got my presence. This is what is most important. The father comes to the crux of the matter. You got my presence. You see, the problem for most people is that even though God has given us access to him, we have not come to him. We have not spent time with him. Spending time with God was not a pleasure. It is not something that we run after. It is not our source of satisfaction. Instead, we still have the mentality of the older brother, the mentality of a slave. Amen. The man, you see, the older brother might be a son, but he thinks like a slave. The younger brother comes to his senses, and guess what? He also wants to be a slave. But the father says, no, 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 I don't want any more slaves. I got enough slaves, right? I want my sons back. And he says to the younger brother who comes, I don't need any more slave. I'm restoring you back to being a son, to be with me. Then he goes and meets the brother. Brother is the same slave mentality. And he has to tell the brother, Hey, I want you as a son, not as a slave. Now, this is what God seeks to communicate to us. The prodigals are waking up from their error. They're going to start coming back. That is a given. It is going to happen. The only question is, will we be able to celebrate with our Heavenly Father when they start coming back? Will we know how to welcome them back? Right? Yep, there'll be some cleaning up to do. There'll be some straightening up. We need a strong freedom ministry to help them get free from their past, to come to a place of healing you know, and wholeness again. And that is all required. But the essential thing that is needed is that we need to start welcoming them back. Amen? Something in us must celebrate them coming back. And if the attention is given to them as they're coming back, it's all fine. Because why? We have the Father with us always. And unless we come to that place where we are sons ourselves, we are daughters ourselves to the Most High and we love His presence, we're not going to be able to restore the prodigals back to becoming sons and daughters. You see, a slave cannot make sons and daughters. It's only a son and a daughter who can raise others up to become sons and daughters. You understand what I'm saying here? So I want to encourage us two things and I'm asking for a response for those of us who are present as well as those who are watching uh, online. Two things. Number one, if you're not yet part of a cell community, I want to strongly encourage you, sign up to be part of the cell community. Hop on to one of our virtual uh, cell uh, booths and we'll tell you a little bit more. Or if you've already decided, just go to the link, put your name down. One of our cell um, staff will come and uh, call you and fit you into a cell that is suitable as best as we can. And I want to encourage you to do that. The second thing I want to encourage you, um, you know, to do is to... to to check our hearts, right? Is God the pleasure of, uh, you know, that, that we, we desire? Are we desiring to spend time with Him? Are we longing for Him? Do we have a son mentality or do we have a slave mentality? Let's all stand to our feet. I want to pray for us and bring this to a close. Amen. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness over our lives. 
We thank you, Lord, that you have appointed for us to be adopted, Lord, not employed, but to be adopted as sons, as daughters to you, Lord. Father, help us understand, Lord, how can we raise and bring back other sons and other daughters when we remain in a slave mentality, Lord, when our attitude is all about serving and what we do and about the rewards that we can get and something may not be adjusted yet in our lives, Lord. But we ask you, Father, this morning, Lord, that your presence will flood us, O God, fill us, that we will know that this is the most important thing. This is the most satisfying thing, Lord. It's not about how much we do for you, Lord, but it's about being with you, Lord. And out of being with you, then do the works matter, Lord. Then do the works count. Then does the fruitfulness come, Lord. Father, I pray as well today that for many of us, you would put before us a vision of this high position that you've called us to, not just to be slaves, but to be friends, Lord. That whatever we ask the Father, it shall be done for us, Lord. We shall receive, O God. What an awesome position this is that God would call us to, Lord. And Father, I pray that you speak to us, convict our hearts as only you can, stir us, move us. Father, I trust your Holy Spirit, Lord. And as we have done all that we, have, we are able to do, then your Holy Spirit will do what only your Spirit can do, Lord. Speak to every person that is in our midst, Lord. Let us take something out from this, make changes in our lives. Maybe some of us, we're going through issues with our cell members, Lord, and we're thinking about dropping it, quitting, Lord. I pray, God, that you help us not to quit, Lord, but to keep working at it, Lord. And Father, we just give you thanks, we give you praise, glory, honour. And Lord, now I just speak your blessings over your congregation, your people, my brothers and my sisters. The blessings of God the Father, the blessings of God the Son, and the blessings of God the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you. Nine forevermore, and everybody say, Amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a clap offering, shall we? listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.